This episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. This week, Morgan Stanley celebrates the two-year anniversary of its plastic waste resolution, a commitment to help prevent, reduce, and remove 50 million metric tons of plastic waste from entering rivers, oceans, landscapes, and landfills by 2030. For more information, please visit morganstanley.com forward slash plastic waste resolution. And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the GreenFin 21 conference this week. On this week's edition, highlights from our premier ESG conference, why diversity is key to climate investing, the case for elevating women in climate tech, and why we're all starting up with startups. We're minding our P&Ls this week on 350. It's April 16th, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350 from the GreenFin 21 conference. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is someone who's always on the money, Green Biz Vice President and Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. <laughs> Hello, Joel. How are you? Are you are you recovered yet? I know you can't be because it's only like one day. Yeah, we're, so we're recording this on, on Wednesday as we typically do for the Friday podcast. And <laughs> so, yeah, so we are um, in post-event... Uh, Euphoria! You know, Euphoria. Euphoria. Thank you. Exactly. And it's a great exhilarating experience to put these on. This was a launch event. We had only done these little half-day events and on, on GreenFan, and this was a two-day full event. Next year will be a three-day event in person at a location still secret to be announced. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was a little close to it because I was instrumental in pulling it together, but I was curious of your impressions, Heather. So first of all, Congratulations, because it really was a terrific event, and I um, am in awe with the speakers that we had. I, I we were we were doing some counting of the, the there were so many CFOs and not one but two really heavyweight speakers from BlackRock, and it's just the content. My head is spinning. I took so many notes, um, which which was which was wonderful. Um, I I just um, boy, I, I think I'm going to be writing about this in the Greenfin newsletter next week but one of the things that really popped out for me was just how much obsession and and focus there still is on reporting <laughs> um not be, not you know not that that's a bad thing but but disclosure and reporting just is just such a a, a topic you know, for all of like sort of cutting edge talking about the role of, you know, investing in women and communities and diversity, equity, inclusion, and and the role of, of AI in corporate reporting, everything, the, the bread and butter sessions about 
ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics. And there's a one called the secret life of ESG, which is how this data is collected and what happens to it and, and where, where it goes and what if it's not right. And and the and and this, those those sessions, one you did on 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 what how corporate sustainability professionals how they view the the role of investors. I mean, those were the ro- virtual rooms were packed, and. Um, and there's, so it's it's very clear that for all the cutting edge stuff, people still are dealing with a lot of basic kinds of things about the, how, how to do reporting, about how to understand data, about you know what this all means, how to standardize it. You know, yeah. I think there was there were a lot of lots of comments, um, calls for better standardization, better clarity around what people wanted to hear about. You know, so that for that that was a big thing for me that that popped out. I also. Because we haven't really been writing about it all that much, I was surprised by how many people brought up carbon pricing, although I probably shouldn't have been surprised, but it came up a number of times and, um, you know, people advocating for it and we need it and economy wide and, you know, Ralph Fizzo, the CEO of my um, local utility, PSENG, <laughs> uh, brought it up. So, I mean, just that that popped out. Um, I really appreciate a couple of the, the sessions that were populated by the folks I normally don't hear from, which are the, like the risk um, managers in the in corporations. That was a great session. Um, I just, I really got a lot out of this event and I'm um, going to be mining it for weeks afterwards. I know that. Um, what about you? I mean, you're so close to it, but like, was there any surprise, were there any surprises for you? I mean, other than the reporting thing you've already mentioned. You know, no big surprises because I sort of knew what to expect, but what was uh, sort of to your point, Heather, what was sort of interesting is how much the finance people really enjoyed our event. I mean, they were, you know, arguably the outsiders, at least at a t- typical sustainability event. And and some of them were just, just seemed to really appreciate the opportunity to engage on this topic. You know, I think it aligns with who they are as people, uh, the concerns they have as, as parents, as citizens, as humans. And, um, and the, the chance to maybe get away from the, the green eye shade stuff to the green stuff uh, was a, a really interesting opportunity for them. And, but also, and this was a big point of the conference, because let's face it, there's seems to be an ESG and sustainable finance conference, not every day, but certainly every week or, or several a month. And what we tried to do here, and I think we did, at least in this first run, and I think we'll build on this going forward, is bringing together the corporate sustainability folks, our base, with the corporate finance folks who they may or may not talk to in the, in the sustainability side, with the big institutional investors and, and investment uh, asset managers and asset owners. We had the CEO of CalPERS and someone from CalSTRS, the California Teachers Retirement Fund, and the world's largest banks, which are now underwriting these green bonds and issuing sustainability-linked loans. They don't spend much time together. They don't get to talk to one another. They don't get to learn about one another's pain points and 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 goals and missions. And that was, I think, a very powerful part of this. As you know, we did this session with the chief financial officer and the chief sustainability officer of Johnson Controls, the big industrial heating, ventilation, air conditioning controls company, uh, bringing them together to talk about how they did uh, their, they did one of the first green bond, 625 million green bond issued uh, from an industrial company in the United States. It was oversubscribed by, I think, seven times. So the demand for this 
to invest in this green bond was was tremendous. But looking under the hood and talking a little bit about how they did it, how they partnered internally, and what those conversations were like, I think was really interesting and instructive. And that's a lot of what we try to do at Greenfin is bring those voices together and let them interact and share the collaborative spirit that that is needed to drive sustainable finance. Indeed, that is one of the conversations I was planning to highlight later in the episode. So we'll we'll come back to that. But I, I have one other point I'd love to make um, as I was thinking about the conference, if if you if I might, if you will indulge me. Um, there was an interesting thread um, in a couple of conversations about how smaller companies, startups, mid you know mid sized companies, can really get more effective with reporting and. I just had one of those aha moments in those sessions because if we have any hope of addressing the scope three issues that that the larger companies want to deal with, they're going to have to be able to see that information for the for the small companies. And so that for me was like one of the kind of like how do you how do you transform these frameworks or how do you get these metrics to a place where someone that doesn't have, you know, five people to put on reporting, can handle it and can can effectively disclose and you know is disclosing things that are material and, and impactful. So that was one of those things where I was listening. I thought, oh my goodness, we don't we don't. I, I need to pay more attention to this. So yes, yeah, so much from this conference. I can't I can't wait to go through my notes and the recordings and everything. And we're and as you said, we're going to play a few clips in a few minutes this week from day one and next week from day two. Um, but that's a little bit of the conference in review. Let's go to our usual weekend review. So we're going to talk about investing. <laughs> unsurprisingly this week about investing, at least uh, a couple of the stories. And, uh, and actually several of the things we talked about this week coming together in this story, which is that when it comes to investing in climate and climate investment funds, Diverse management is imperative, and this came from Marilyn Waite, who was one of our speakers this week. She did not talk about this particular topic. She was actually talking. She is the program officer for climate finance at the Hewlett Foundation and talked uh, about uh, where we're going to find the trillions of dollars that are going to be needed to invest in all the solutions that will then address the, the climate crisis and the sustainable development goals and um, and she wrote this great piece about how, the role that diversity plays in, in investing, basically, and why you really need to be able to address environmental justice at the same time you're in, in addressing environmental solutions. Mm-hmm. And there were some pretty um, astounding numbers in this story for me. I just, I mean, I knew I knew that this this issue of who makes the decisions about where to invest, um, and Marilyn did a really great job of pointing out that most of the people making the decisions right now about that um, are men, specifically white men. Mutual fund, this is a, one of the, the staggering statistics from her, from her story. Mutual fund, hedge fund, private equity, and real estate fund managers are collectively 98.7% white male-led. I, I just thought, wow. Yeah, wow. I, you know, I just I I couldn't even it was spe- it made me speechless. But so this this now Mar- Marilyn what Marilyn is really great at doing is is pointing to the to the challenge and then also offering ideas for how to, to how to get to how to address it. You know, like things that that companies can do 
to uh, start addressing uh, there, there is the issue. And in this particular instance, she, she really calls for these same asset managers as well as venture capital firms and other people handling the money to get a lot better at putting diverse managers in, the, in place to make decisions about this, in hiring, in changing their, their data sets, right? Looking at the right data, even starting with that. So I just, diversity, and she, you know, she, put, she points out in this, this story, diversity drives innovation. Like time and time again, you see if you invest in funds, if, if, peop, if funds invest in companies that are run by diverse or women-led entrepreneurs, that the returns are, are phenomenal and that the investors in turn need to be looking at that kind of data and, and thinking about how to change their model. So, and I know you want to dig into this, do, you know, talk about what, what due diligence funds could do to, to get to a better place. And what I was going to point out about the story is that uh, she peppers this story with a lot of resources. So there's the, the yeah. 17 principles of environmental justice, which is being used for uh, it, which can be used by fixed income investors to to design bonds. She she references a number of different studies. The uh, uh, and then there's I'm scrolling through here the emerging manager monthly, the due diligence 2.0 commitment, um, a number of the diverse climate fund manager initiative, uh, all linked of course to to uh, for more information. Uh, this is a really uh, information-rich and resource-rich story. Uh, I, I really very much appreciate that. Yeah. But let's let's move over to another story, which is very much related, which is about uh, women in climate tech. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you have a lot to say about this, but this is what <laughs> comes from, from our very own Shauna Rappaport, who is uh, Senior Vice President and Executive Director of our Verge Conference. Um, she was thinking about, you know, how can we boost the carbon drawdown potential of clean technologies by supporting more women-led startups in the burgeoning climate tech ecosystem? And she goes through 15 of them. Uh, you know, I mean, you, I'm sure you have some favorites in here. I'm sure you know many, if not most of these. I know Molly Morse from Mango Materials and making bioplastics. I know several of these, Itosha Cave from Opus 12. Uh, but uh, you're, uh, you, you do both the badass women story and <laughs> increasingly leaning into climate tech. So I guess I should shut up and let you talk about this. Well, actually, I should tell you, I'll tell you a secret. And that's, um, um, you know, Shauna and I talked about this story before she wrote it. And um, one of the things that inspired her was the fourth anniversary of the Project Drawdown research that was the a really, you know, on climate solutions that showed that one of the best ways to catalyze and reverse global warming was to invest in women and girls. So that was sort of her original thesis. And I said, why, why don't you talk about some of the great investments that people have made? So that's kind of where this lit, this story, uh, that's the backstory on the story. Um, but yeah, I, I um, am particularly intrigued. I mean, tons of people on this list I'm, I'm I'm familiar with someone I haven't talked to that I really want to talk to um, in the future is Sarah Menker, um, founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. And, and what Grow does is take big data, artificial intelligence, and so forth. They're in like mapping. They're mapping food trends and and offering insights on the agricultural system, which, as we know, is a huge um, contributor to emissions and so forth. And she actually came up in a, in a session that I attended this week at Greenfin and, and the sort of 
this is a long-term, a long, uh, a company that's a hundred-year company, as one of the people on the panel put it, because everyone's going to need this data, even if you're not a food company. Um, it's such such an important data set, and and it's you know back to the, what we were talking about in the the chit chat. We need data to address this challenge. So so she's particularly um, interesting to me. Uh, Lisa Dyson, who we've had on the uh, uh, you know at Verge in the past. Uh, working on air protein, you know, how do you create air-based meat? That's her her uh, her focus for this particular story. And then just you know, thinking about uh, carbon removal, Atosha Cave, um, the founder of Opus Twelve. You know, just those are those are companies that I'm I'm really particularly watching myself. I and I love how uh, Shauna calls them shiros. <laughs> Shiro's, however that's pronounced, but um, I know it's a term that people use, and I and I appreciate it very much. So yeah, I, I encourage people to look at this list as well. I mean, you you kind of buried the lead there, Heather. Air-based meat. Ah, uh, yeah, I know. I kind of buried the lead, but I you know we've talked about it. I know, but every time I see it, it, it I, I I'm like, really? Well, wow. I just... mean, plant-based meat. I'm 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 getting the hang of that. I've had it. I've tasted some of it. It's you know. It's anywhere from good to, to very good in some cases, depending on how it's cooked. But air-based meat, they're combining air, water, mineral nutrients mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to create meat. Fascinating. But it also points back to why you have to invest in, in girls to, to look at science, careers in science and not to be afraid of it, not to listen to, you know, not to, to help, help support that culturally. And, um, you know, because she, she got the idea, at Na- you know, at NASA, um, and so it's just, it's just, um, I don't know, it's inspiring to me. And I, I will point out also, um, that many of the people on this list are diverse. And, um, that was the other important factor. I think that, that Shauna was highlighting is just these, co- many of these companies here are finding early traction. They're finding early partnerships and they're doing well and they're good. They're good risks. So I think that's my big takeaway. Well, speaking of steely women, we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know where this is going to talk about green steel. Um, and you talked about you know data points. Here's a data point about producing steel is responsible for about seven to nine percent of total global greenhouse gas emissions. And there is this world of of, of how do you deal with that? With the world needs steel. Concrete is another one. How do you deal with that? Um, in, in green concrete, and, and we've, I'm sure, talked about this. We've certainly written about it. There's lots of startups here, but greener steel is is uh, sort of an interesting thing. She brought up three companies. This is uh, associate editor Jesse Klein wrote this piece about uh, increased blast furnace efficiency, uh, hydrogen steel plant, molten oxide electrolysis, <laughs> which uh, separates oxygen from iron ore using electricity and creates the the oxygen that's needed as a byproduct instead of uh, creates oxygen instead of carbon dioxide as a byproduct this is from a company called boston metal i mean this is really i mean this is the kind of nitty-gritty stuff that needs to happen all throughout the economy but particularly in these so-called hard to abate sectors which include concrete and steel and aviation and railroads and and a number of other chemicals, a number of other sectors that are not something where you can just simply turn them, you know, make them more efficient or substitute one thing for another. They're, and that's UN speak, hard to abate sectors. This is about seven or eight of those. This is just really super important 
stuff. And a lot of this is early stage or it's in the trial or pilot stage and hasn't yet gone to scale, but all of this has the potential to do that. And uh, as these companies, Boston Metal or, or Kobe Steel or others that are that are a Netherlands-based company called EIT Inno Energy that are taking these innovations and, and testing them and commercializing them in, in the hopes of scaling them, these could be transformative in a lot of ways that Frankly, it's not that sexy to most uh, most people out there, but is will be incredibly important in getting us where we need to go. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to Jesse. Uh, she's our newest editorial team member. Um, just just joined us this month, um, and she is uh, actually on the food beat. <laughs> but she found this. Uh, we, we talked about this story, and she was like, "I really want to look at this." And so she she jumped in, took it on. Um, from from the, from my standpoint, one of the interesting things with this particular story is these innovations are. Um, we talk about electrification, right? Electrification is a big trend. We have a conference coming up at that about that next month. Wow, is it next month in May? Yeah, I guess May is next month. And uh, the the important thing that's happening here is that the efficiency of the process and the way that the the actual chemical reactions are happening is be is what's being adjusted um, in order to hopefully in the future, allow more of these processes to run off renewable energy so that they won't have to have the, the sort of intense heat processes associated with them that, that they have, that they, they currently have, right? And coal, coal is used to, to strip the oxygen out of iron ore. And that's, you know, that's sort of traditionally how it's been done. So there's a lot of really hard, as you were saying, hard science that has to happen here in order for the efficiency to improve and for there to be, um, a shift in how the production is happening. And I actually want to point to the EIT, Inno Energy model, as, as one that's particularly interesting because it's a joint venture. It's funded by the European Union. It's Vargas Holdings Scania, which is a Swedish truck manufacturer. Um, they're involved. And it's just, it helps bring together basically the, the, the maker and the buyer. And that's, it, they're focusing on just as much on the science, uh, economics as they are on the science of, of how, do, how do you make this work? How do you make it? economically viable, and that's so important. Okay, what do I got? First of all, I just want to acknowledge you again. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You had put together a terrific main stage, so we're going to have four highlights from the first day in this episode and some more to come, including some uh, some of the amazing BlackRock interview that you did uh, in the next episode. The first two clips I'm gonna introduce come from a discussion about how the pandemic shaped ESG. And it was led by the CEO of S&P Global True Cost, uh, Rich Madison, your good friend. And toward the end of the session, Rich asked the panelists what they perceived as the biggest challenges investors and companies face in transitioning toward a net zero future. So we hear first from Rick LaCalle. He's the global chief investment officer of State Street Global Advisors. And he's followed by the other panelist, Suzanne DiBiacca, the executive vice president of corporate relations and the chief impact officer for software company Salesforce. There are no easy solutions, but if we had carbon pricing, and again, if you had a, a global accord on carbon pricing and you had a ratcheting up of carbon prices, then that would make everything else significantly easier. Um, I'd say there is a 
pretty rapidly emerging consensus amongst asset owners, asset managers in the financial sector, that it's both achievable and something we can start doing right now, moving towards uh, net zero. I think there are obviously technology challenges. We need to drive down the costs of the decarbonization. We need to look at the most difficult industries uh, where it's not easy to abate uh, the carbon exposure, but it's not impossible either. And to direct capital to you know, developing those technologies. And I think I'm optimistic about that, whether it's hydrogen, ammonia, renewable energy, all of the industries that are the most difficult from the cement business to the shipping business, there are solutions. And in a sense, they require the redirection of capital as much as new capital. And that's why engagement stewardship plays such an important role. Collectively, investors own these companies. They can make capex decisions. They can make both disclosure decisions and more actionable steps towards a net zero plan. I think in the private sector, it's very clear that that's happening in quite a vigorous way. Obviously, it's it's a global phenomenon. And in an important sense, the capital lives in developed economies, but many of the investment needs are actually in the emerging economies. And that's one of the biggest challenges that we face. So carbon pricing, recognition of investor needs, technology development, and this developed versus emerging capital transition that has to happen as well. Focus is one of the challenges. I think many people don't know where to focus within the context of the SDGs, right? Or the IBC metrics. There's 21 there. There's 17 in the SDGs. There's there's many different frameworks, right? All that which are critical and kind of ladder up to each other. And I think we're beginning to see the laddering up, but it's a bit of the Wild West. And it reminds me a little bit it, from a technology perspective, speaking from a technology company, reminds me of the crowdfunding days where you know, there was sort of many platforms that sort of rose up to meet a challenge of, of crowdfunding. And a few, you sort of saw the few winners uh, three to five years later. I think we're in a moment of kind of carbon cowboys, um, both on the ground, trying to work with farmers locally all over the world, particularly in the, glo- the global south about how the economics, um, how to accelerate the part of the carbon market called you know, carbon credits and, and proving to farmers that it it's, can be economically better, honestly, to, you know, retain your land um, or to um, build more biodiversity than to cut it down and, and sell your trees. I think we're in an economic transition on the ground um, as it relates to sort of the, the local people that are providing the carbon credits. We talked about the 1,500 companies who have made net zero commitments. Well, they've got to buy these credits. And so I think the standardization is going to be really key. The economic development of people on the ground and making that case quickly, uh, it's reducing the time um, in which one can count as a carbon credit. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of this kind of mess on the ground. Um, immature carbon markets, carbon cowboys that are, you know, pricing of carbon is, is incredibly different based on wherever you are in the world. So I think, um, you know, their demand side is accelerating. The supply side needs to uh, mature uh, and grow. And we need, as we're pointing to, and, and you said yourself, Richard, this, this kind of notion of standards. We need this kind of gap accounting equivalent. TCFD says we are all, you know, very good, robust standards. But I think we need to really kind of uh, sort of hone in on the, on, on the one that is comprehensive enough 
And the technology solutions to get there, again, bit of a wild west, but something that we're doing at Salesforce, we're working on, we have a great carbon accounting system that is, um, it's auditable investor grade data. And we're working with leaders like you, Richard, to begin to expand that out to the other elements of the SDGs. The second pair of audio highlights comes from the session you moderated, Joel, about the 625 million green bond issued by Johnson Controls last year. The transaction was clearly a close partnership between the company's sustainability and finance teams, and there's more to come. They're, they're planning to do more. I really love their answers to the question about the internal engagement that this took and how and who were involved. So that's what I selected. We hear first from Katie McGinty, Vice President and Chief Sustainability Government and Regulatory Affairs Officer. And then we hear from the Johnson Controls Chief Financial Officer, Olivier Leonetti. Well, no, there definitely uh, was mutual learning. So when we first uh, started to work with the finance team and we're bringing in our alphabet soup of TCFD and CDP and SASB, let alone scopes one, two, and three, uh, that, that was definitely a learning curve there. But also then uh, as we went jointly on this roadshow, and we were able to hear firsthand as a sustainability team what 150 plus investors had on their minds and what they needed to see. That was a terrific learning for us. And Joel, if I could capture where both the finance team and the sustainability team totally um, uh, wound up with a shared view after that mutual learning, it's one, greening of the capital markets is critical to tackling climate. Second, green finance can be an especially useful tool because of the forced rigor and transparency that investors certainly bring to bear and because green finance can reach tougher sectors. But third, and this is really important, if we're going to really unlock those capital flows, the front end in structuring these instruments needs to get easier and not so transaction uh, cost intensive, but the back end needs to get more coherent, less alphabet soup, standardized and clear so that investors can have confidence as to this constitutes green, my investment is going to go to something that is understood to be green. When we do something right for the planet, people are on board. And by the way, doing something right for the planet made a lot of business sense. So people were actually queuing up to participate to the project. We had no resistance internally to get it done. Uh, I mean, at the front line, KT team was there, our R&D team was there, our manufacturing team that was there, and engaging in something that fundamental for the future, people were behind it, right? I, I heard story, Joel, about uh, dads and mom talking about what we're doing at the company at the dinner table and the impact that that had uh, in terms of motivation and being proud to be part of the organization. No resistance. Tune in next week for more from the Greenfin main stage. And Joel, that's all I got. That was great. Thanks for lining those up. One of 
the most highly anticipated programs at our annual Circularity and Verge events is Accelerate, a fast pitch competition that highlights climate tech entrepreneurs. Many of the participating startups have later attracted venture funding rounds or gone on to forge relationships with corporate partners. This week, nominations open for our first Accelerate session of 2021, a component of the Circularity event. Joining GreenBiz 350 to chat about the nomination process is one of the latest additions to the GreenBiz Group team, Sherry Totoki, Director of Startup Programs. Welcome, Sherry. Hi, Heather. Thank you for having me. So why don't you start uh, by first introducing yourself to our listeners? What's your background? Yeah, so I just joined the team from Elemental Accelerator, where I was the Director of Accelerator Operations. And what I did there was oversee our due diligence process and selected 15 to 20 startups to fund each year from about 800 applicants. And I also would support our portfolio companies on any programming, events, prizes, and essentially anything through our uh, accelerator program itself. And before that, I received my MBA from Presidio Graduate School, uh, where I received an MBA in sustainable management. So really, this role at GreenBiz is a perfect blend and nexus of my passion for startups, the innovation economy, events, bringing people together, and of course, finding solutions to help curb the effects of climate change. Now, I know many people know Elemental. I'm just wondering if you could talk about some of the areas of startups, the different sectors that you were looking at. Yeah, so it's a growth stage uh, accelerator program, funding companies from pre-seed up to Series C and beyond. And the sectors that we funded were energy, water, agriculture, mobility, and the circular economy. I know you've literally only been with us for a couple of weeks, but what's your high-level strategic vision for the GreenBiz Startup Program? Any hints about what's to come? Yeah, what I'm really excited about is the unique place GreenBiz sits as conveners and thought leaders and the ability to bring together audiences that wouldn't normally talk to one another. And I'm also looking forward to riding the momentum of the new administration and building interest in funding climate change solutions. Additionally, I'm looking forward to building on the success of Accelerate and developing new programs focused on facilitating these connections and the innovation economy and really being the center of gravity for startups, innovators, accelerators, investors, corporates, nonprofits to really all come together and further convene and catalyze these solutions against climate change. That's quite a vision, quite a big vision. Uh, just to, to build on, on a little bit of that, that community, how do they gather? I mean, it's, it's obviously we're in the virtual world right now, but do you envision other sort of forums for them or, or how, how do you normally help connect these people? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, for 2021, we'll definitely be looking at hosting Verge online and therefore Accelerate online as well. But as we're looking at opening up in 2022 and beyond is really looking at how can we once again have Verge and have these in-person events be the conveners of everyone coming together? And what does that look like um, in the, a new open economy? So more to come there uh, as we are continuing to build out Verge and you know, eventually maybe even other uh, large programming and events to bring together this startup innovation ecosystem. Okay, so the nominations for the Circularity 21 Accelerate program are live. What sorts of technologies are you seeking to highlight? 
Yeah, well, we're really excited that we launched the Accelerate program this week. And really what we're looking at within the circular economy is this practice that's applied to the nexus of several sectors. So what we're looking for are solutions that design out waste and pollution, increase the use of recycled materials in supply chains, and keeping products and materials in use for longer. And what we really want are companies that have the ability to scale and really make an impact and have the ability to reach commercial level traction. So are they, these are early stage companies, correct? Is there a, like a limit on how much funding they have or how long they've been around? Anything like that? No. So actually what we're doing that's new this year is that we're not having any requirements of early stage versus late stage. We're really mm-hmm. opening it up to wow. um, say, you know, any funding, any revenue, and we'll be selecting kind of across every stage based on what we see in the pipeline. I'm sorry if you already mentioned the number, but will there be a specific number of uh of companies that get a chance to pitch? Yeah, we're looking at selecting five startup companies Got to it. pitch. Okay. Okay. So how does the judging work? We're really going to be polling the audience. So everyone in attendance will be opening up the polling through Hopin online. And we'll be using that to gather votes for all of the pitches once they uh, do their pitch on the main stage. And then we'll be announcing the winner live at the event. You also have, will you also be having subject matter experts to kind of talk through the, the, the different propositions of the companies? Yeah, we'll be looking at having at least two industry experts that really understand the circular economy, understand the solutions, and having them give their input on the pitches themselves and on what they're seeing in the um, industry right now. So what's the call to action? How can listeners nominate someone or maybe even themselves? Yeah, well, they should reach out to me. I'm Sherry at greenbiz.com, or they can go to our website, greenbiz.com slash events. And the Accelerate application is live on the Circularity 21 page. And we're taking applications until May 7. So looking for companies to really get an application by that deadline. Great. Well, I'm so excited that you're part of GreenBiz. This is awesome. This is like one of my favorite parts of our event. So Sherry, thank you for joining me today here on GreenBiz 350. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You just heard from Sherry Totoki, Director of Startup Programs for GreenBiz. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned. While you're over there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll learn more about them. We love to hear from you. Your comments, your questions, your tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. This week, Morgan Stanley celebrates the two-year anniversary of its plastic waste resolution, a commitment to help prevent, reduce, and remove 50 million metric tons of plastic waste from entering rivers, oceans, landscapes, and landfills by 2030. For more information, please visit morganstanley.com forward slash plastic waste resolution. 
And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com.